Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Our bodies often heal from cuts and sores with a few scars. When they don't, they may require medical attention. Wound care, tonight, on call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. I'm Dr. Jill Cruz, host of tonight's On Call with the Prairie Doc program, part of the celebration of 20 seasons of truthful, tested, and timely medical information. Continuing that tradition is our goal for tonight's discussion. Joining us in our studio on the South Dakota State University campus in Brookings is Dr. Nephi Jones, Avera Podiatry, Brookings, South Dakota. And via Zoom is Dr. Katherine Lincoln with Guthrie Medical Center, Sari, Pennsylvania. Welcome to On Call with the Prairie Doc, and thank you for volunteering your time. So, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, your specialty? We'll, we'll start with you, Dr. Jones. How long have you been in Brookings, and how long have you been practicing? Well, thank you for having me here tonight. Um, I've been in Brookings for about three months. I came from Iowa. We spent the last three years in the Des Moines, Iowa area. Um, I'm here with my wife and three of our children. All right, and you specialize in podiatry? I specialize in podiatry or uh, foot and ankle surgery, um, which is just the, the health and well-being from uh, basically the knee down. Excellent. All right. And Dr. Lincoln, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, uh, where you practice, and uh, your specialty? Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here with you all tonight. Um, I'm coming to you live from Sayre, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's on the border with New York State. My husband and I are both physicians here in Sayre, Pennsylvania. Um, we have two children who just came home from trick-or-treating. I am a full-time wound care specialist. And so I am a physician in practice. I take care of patients of all ages, uh, sizes, races, backgrounds, um, just about their wounds. Um, wounds that have not healed in a way that they thought that they should. Um, working on lots of different medical teams making sure that patients are able to heal the wounds that have developed, whether from surgery, from chemotherapies, from diabetes. Um, and, and I'm thankful to be a part of a big team. Excellent. And, and how long have you been practicing uh, with just wound care? I've been wound care specialty only for nine years, and I was a practicing family physician for five years prior to that. Okay. Interesting. What led you to make the uh, transition from uh, family medicine to uh, wound care as a specialty? So as you know, family physicians are amazing and can learn anything. Um, we really are dedicated to the life of our patients and, and the needs and filling in those needs as we go. And so after five years in private practice and in family medicine, I had the opportunity to retrain into a specialty and the, my mentor physician was a family physician who had done just that and had retrained. And we felt together that we could serve our patients in this very specific way, which was just a, a continuation of the care that we had provided them, but in a very specific way that had a start, a middle, and an end. And I just love it. And I couldn't be happier with the work that I do. Yes. 
So I think wound care is a very uh, unique um, specialty when you're measuring your progress, not necessarily in days, but sometimes it's weeks, months, sometimes even years with certain uh, chronic um, ulcers or recurrent ulcers. Uh, and some people will always have kind of chronic issues, you know, diabetics, people with bad vascular issues. Um, Kind of tell me about developing those relationships with your patients. Um, have you had anywhere you, you've kind of had that successful, um, happy ending, but it's been a long road and by the end you feel like you're old friends? Sure, so in our practice setting, 14 weeks is the time that a patient should be able to heal. So if we back up just a moment, as human beings, we get breaks in our skin, whether they come from surgery or because you tripped outside or a wheelbarrow hit you, as human beings, we get breaks in the skin. And so we, as human beings with immune systems, should be able to heal any kind of wound in with little effort in 21 days or less. And so one of the first questions that everybody should ask, either themselves or their partners, when they say, can you look at something I'm worried about, is how long has it been there? And if it's been there for more than 21 days, you should take it to someone. You should take it to your family doctor and if your family doctor thinks that it's um, reasonable for you, you may see a wound care specialist. Um, we know that the longer a wound is open, the longer it, it takes to heal. And so we, in, once patients come to our office, we use all of the medical and surgical modalities that we have at our disposal and try to get those patients healed from the time they present to 14 weeks or less. But there are some people who have you know, other issues. They're on dialysis, um, they're diabetic, They you know, are on active chemotherapies. And so their timeline may look a little bit different. Interesting. So, well, we look forward to answering your questions about wound care concerns. Call 1-888-376-6225. Send an email to ask at prairiedoc.org or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. And to encourage your questions, those of you who ask a question during the first 20 minutes of tonight's program will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of the program. Your questions will remain anonymous, but be sure to provide your name and contact information when you submit your questions so we can contact the winner. So, Dr. Jones, do you want to talk a little bit about what sort of wounds or sores do you typically see as a podiatrist? Are there um, kind of more unique things that just happen on the foot? Yes, um, typically we're usually dealing with diabetic foot infections or some sort of venous leg ulceration due to uncontrolled uh, venous insufficiency. Uh, so, but typically it is the diabetic foot infections. So they're, they're a very unique set of patients. Uh, people with uncontrolled diabetes and then if they have peripheral vascular disease on top of it. It's, it can be very tricky to balance all those things um, to find the right treatment uh, to get these people healed and, and many times it takes longer than 14 weeks. Um, it takes several months, several, you know, can be over a year to get these people healed. And so um, it's, wound care is very tricky. It's a, it's a dynamic, um, it changes weekly. Um, there's some patients we see weekly, some people we see every other week or monthly. Um, just depends on their specific needs and, and how severe their wounds are. Um, sometimes we need to step in surgically and correct things to be able to, to uh, get the wounds to heal themselves. Um, so it's, it's very dynamic. Every patient is unique. 
Um, every situation is different and you kind of have to combine all your wisdom and, and everything you learn from each patient um, to treat the next one that comes in the office. Interesting. So is there a way that we grade wounds to say how bad one is versus another? Um, either of you want to want to take that with our, our grading of a, a sore between you know something that's just red versus I can see the bone <laughs> sticking out of this gaping hole in, a, in an ulcer? Yes, um, so there's different grading scales depending on what type of, of wound you're, you're dealing with and Dr. Lincoln uh, might be able to shine some light on some of it as well. Um, but for diabetic foot infections, typically we use a Wagner grade scale, um, grade one through five, and that depends on the depth of the wound. Is it a superficial wound? Does it go down to the bone? Is there infection present? Um, is there necrosis? Is, is there tissue actively dying and how much uh, of the tissue is dying? Um, so that's one of the main grading scales we look at and that kind of gives us just a real glimpse on how severe is this problem and how long is, is this patient going to be with us and we can kind of give them an idea, hey this, this could be a few weeks, we can get you healed up or we're going to spend a lot, to, a lot of time together. <laughs> okay, sounds good. So I've got a few caller questions coming in right now, this is excellent. Um, I. Someone watching on Facebook's ask, is it better to keep a small wound open to air or cover it with a Band-Aid? Dr. Lincoln, what would you recommend? So in our practice, um, we find that covering it is the most helpful because you're gonna create a little tiny environment for the wound. And oftentimes when you're in and out of the shower or you have irritation from the pants or uh, you know sweater that you're wearing, depending on where your wound is, it can be very irritating to the wound. So as many um, outside factors as you can take away so that we're just dealing with the wound and not all of the extraneous things, the better off we're gonna be. And so we want a wound that's not too wet and not too dry. And so oftentimes we hear patients say, well, you know, should I put mud on it? Should I put bag balm on it? Should I use hydrogen peroxide? Um, and so the question that we often have in our minds is, is the wound too wet or too dry? And the medical solution is to get it to do the other thing. If it's too wet, we want to figure out how to dry it. And if it's too dry, we, the physicians, are trying to figure out how to make it more wet. And when we just leave things to air, oftentimes they get too dry, which reduces the ability to heal that wound quickly. Okay, but if you have it covered up 24-7 and it's getting all gross and macerated and, and moisture is trapped underneath that Band-Aid, that's a bad thing too. So too much of a good thing is a bad thing. Correct. I agree. I also think covering the wound kind of reduces the bile burden or the biofilm because um, naturally wounds can develop uh, bacteria growth over them just because we have so much surface bacteria on our skin that, um, you know, covering a wound can help reduce that bio burden, especially when we go to do dressing changes, it helps to kind of remove that bio burden. Excellent. Well, a caller from Aberdeen is asking, what is the best way to prevent scarring with wound healing? I know everyone's everybody's concerned, what's this gonna look like? Um, that's, a, that's an excellent question. I don't typically um, have a good answer for that, except for maybe a vitamin E oil or some sort of aloe um, once the wound gets healed, but you don't, want um, to put too much moisturizing cream on it because that skin can still be kind of friable. Um, so you want to be careful with, with what you're putting on that area just to make sure we don't re-ulcerate. And it's also a little bit difficult because, you know, scarring and 
looking at how to prevent uh, long-term scarring in the face is gonna look really different than on the foot. So on the face, once the wound is healed, it's of utmost importance that we wear sunscreen all the time, twice a day, as much sunscreen as you can put on it. Because we know that where those tissues heal and we have scars, that you can get an incredible burn on that scar line. So if it's someplace that's on your foot that may not be as sun exposed, um, you know, scars may be less of a cosmetic concern. Certainly we all wanna have beautiful feet, um, but someplace that is sun exposed, we wanna make sure that sunscreen, sunscreen, sunscreen for at minimum of the first six months after that wound is healed and closed, but really ideally lifelong. Okay, so how long does it take for a scar to mature? I had heard somewhere it could take up to like a year or two years to know what that final scar is going to truly look like because I know they'll fade, they'll shrink, they'll, they'll evolve over time. So usually between six months and two years, depending on who and what the patient is before they developed an ulcer. And so if it's um, you know a six month old baby with a burn, they are going to scar much more quickly than someone that's my age in my 40s, I'm gonna scar much less quickly. And the difficulty with scar anywhere on our body is that when we have a scar, we never have the strength of our native tissue that we do in that scarred location. So if we're gonna go on to re-ulcerate at some point in our lives, it's likely gonna happen right on that scar line. Okay, so do all these like over the counter, you, you hear about Modern, um, Moderna, that's like the vaccine too, isn't it? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I just thought about yes. that. Uh, so those or the, the silicone scar sheets, do, do those help anything? Or is that just a clever marketing ploy? Is Vaseline just as good? Does it matter? So I, above the yeah. waist, um, we can use Vaseline and the plastic surgeons often ask you to do scar massage to give some mobility underneath that scar. Um, the silicone sheets can work very well. Mostly what they're doing is taking the pressure off of that scar line. So they're allowing the scar to heal underneath with greater strength. Some people swear by them. Um, often in our patients, they have complex underlying disease. They're on dialysis, they're struggling with diabetes. Um, and so we wanna optimize all of their medical things, like not smoking and trying to you know, work out weight reduction if that's appropriate. And those things in the long haul will really do much more than choosing an over-the-counter silicone pack. Okay, so there's a lot of things that play into this. Yes, ma'am. All right. Well, for decades, hyperbaric oxygen therapy has been used to help manage and heal certain wounds and conditions. Prairie Doc reporter Carter Schmidt takes us to Brookings Health System to learn about this unique treatment. All right. We've done our safety check. Okay. Hyperbaric oxygen therapy is breathing in 100% pure oxygen at a higher pressure than in the normal atmosphere. And by having higher pressure of oxygen, it allows your lungs to take in uh, that oxygen better, infuse it into your bloodstream, and then go out to the rest of your body. The therapy is used for many different medical conditions. It's most commonly for um, ulcers, uh, specifically diabetic ulcers. Um, it also uh, can help treat specific bone and skin infections, uh, radiation injuries for those who have undergone uh, some cancer treatment. Um, also uh, for individuals that may have had um, any uh, issues with skin grafts or flaps, anything like that. 
Jones says each therapy session could last up to two hours depending on your medical condition. The process is simple and easy. So individuals come into the chamber after going through an entire checklist for their safety and the hyperbaric techs, which are respiratory therapists, they monitor the patients in there, they direct um, the levels that they are at and uh, just take care of them all throughout that process. Jones says the number of therapies necessary depends on the condition, but it could be anywhere from five to 10 sessions to 40 to 60 sessions. But what if someone is claustrophobic? The nice thing about these chambers is they're completely see-through, so you can see everything around you. It's not like you are tight in an enclosed space like an MRI machine or a CT scan, and the chambers are quite large, so you can move around just a little bit in there, but sometimes individuals too may need to take some medication to help them calm down before they go into the chambers, but usually after you know one or two times that they're in there, they understand the process and are much more comfortable with it. Welcome to the surface. You made it. Now, is this anything that either of you would recommend uh, for a patient for healing wounds? And what sort of wounds would be appropriate for hyperbaric oxygen? Yes, uh, from the podiatry standpoint, um, we highly recommend it for non-healing diabetic foot ulcerations that have failed multiple different therapies. They've failed you know, a skin graft. Um, they have recalcitrant um, osteomyelitis, so they still have bone infection. Um, and then typically, um, we have to show that there's still um, bone infection within uh, the foot. Um, to get that qualified, um, I think it's a very underutilized uh, tool that we have at our disposal. Yeah, I think it was well, a, a relatively new one that we've just uh, yes. had here in Brookings. So, yes. uh, do you use this much, Dr. Lincoln? And when, if so? Yeah, so we have this medical modality available to us here at our hospital, and we're in a very rural location, and we serve 12 <coughs> counties here at our hospital um, in rural Pennsylvania. And so some people are driving an hour and a half or two hours every day for this therapy. And oftentimes it can be used in a limb salvage way. We can help to save a foot or save a leg in patients that would otherwise be amputated. So while sometimes surgery is a quick answer, um, this is something that requires time and energy and effort on the, on the patient's side. They showed you the checklist and coming to the center but it is a way in the selected patients to be able to keep their toes and feet and ankles, which as we know, are really helpful and useful for walking. And so we're very thankful to be able to provide this therapy for patients. Most do very, very well, but they're screened to make sure that their underlying health conditions are, are well addressed before we use it. Excellent, well, I'm actually starting to get some training in this as well, I'm about six hours into the 40 hour course for this and, um, just as a scuba diver myself, I'm uh, secretly happy that there's a chamber that should I go on vacation somewhere, dive a little too deep, get the bends <laughs> as I am traveling back home because I flew before I should have. Um, I've got somewhere I can decompress. Yes. <laughs> this is the exact same thing. I mean, you're yes. simulating uh, scuba diving. Yes, yes. Which is... That's why it's very interesting <laughs> that we have this medical therapy that has been developed by the U.S. Um, Naval team and the divers over you know, decades. 
And so it's something that we really feel very comfortable being able to offer to our patients. Sometimes we feel like it's a new modality, but it really has been established and it's been in the medical literature with some of these people for decades. And it's something that works really well to be able to keep limbs attached. Yeah, it, it, I think it is just fascinating. The more I study about it, the more I'm blown away by what this can do. And um, in the right patient, it can be life-changing. So, all right. Well, we've got more questions here. I don't want to ignore our callers. Uh, a caller from Volga asks uh, if you guys could talk about what you would do to heal a small burn. So I see burns very often in our practice. Um, something that we recommend, there's an over-the-counter uh, medication that is available at the local pharmacy, um, over-the-counter or on Amazon, because I know they deliver to my house, I'm certain they deliver to your house. Um, that's a Manuka-based honey. It's a medicinal honey. It's not just farmer's market honey. And when used in burns, it really has some incredible data to show excellent wound healing. It is able to keep the wounds moist it can give them a little bit of salt to help draw out some of the fluid from underneath um, and really has good data to, to be behind it. So oftentimes, right when a burn occurs, we ask the patient to run uh, lukewarm water, not very hot and not very cold water over whatever was burned um, for about two to three minutes. It's, it feels like a long time when you're the person with the burn. Uh, we don't put ice on it. It can cause additional um, temperature burn so we don't do that. We don't put a heating pad on it. So we run it under um, sort of medium temperature water for about two minutes and then applying honey three, four, five times a day. You cannot overdose on honey. You could eat it, but it would be a very expensive medical snack, but you could eat it. Um, works really well in children of all ages. Um, works well with people that may not um, be able to communicate as well, patients with dementia. dementia if they do happen to eat it or get it in their mouth, it's absolutely non-toxic. So it's something that we, we really uh, recommend and it's very widely available and inexpensive. All right, so this is special medical grade honey. You don't take it out of the bear and pour it on your skin, right? Just yes, to be clear. <laughs> we don't get it at the local uh, farm store. Okay, all right, sounds good. Well, are there situations or factors uh, that cause wounds to not heal? What sort of things are put uh, the stack the deck against you so yeah there's a lot of different things that that could be stacked against the patient um, especially when they're on the foot um, pressure is one thing um, typically there's you know a prominent bone or a prominent area that led to a callus that then led to an ulceration and on top of it they have diabetes or neuropathy they have peripheral arterial disease and so once a wound gets kind of stuck in that chronic phase where the body no longer recognizes it as a, a wound, then it, it slowly doesn't, doesn't heal. So then we have to try to change the game. We have to change the factors of what's going on with this wound. Why will it not heal? Um, so we have to really dig in and do an investigation and figure out what are the things that we need to supply the wound? Um, is, it, is it too dry? Do we need to, to moisten it? Um, are their blood sugars under control? Do we need to get their blood sugars down? Um, are their kidneys functioning properly um, or do they have too much swelling in their legs? There's, there's so many different factors that you have to take into consideration and create the right healing environment for the wound. Uh, another thing is serial debridements. The wounds have to be clean. They have to be uh, debrided of all the excess um, overburden. Um, 
a lot of patients don't like when you make their wounds bleed, but it's very necessary. It's very, um, it stimulates the body to say, hey, this isn't a chronic thing. It's not supposed to be here. So you're trying to stimulate the body to, to heal itself. So, so we have to, on those, those foot wounds especially, we like to see the edges bleed, the base bleed, so we know we have good blood flow. But then we also st stimulate the body to bring in more healing cells and, and to lay down new skin. Okay, so you're not making it worse when it's We're bleeding. We're not making it worse. You're, you're getting rid of all the dead stuff that's not going to heal or get better anyway. So you're just cleaning it up, telling the body, hey, you might want to do something yes. over here. Yes. And well, your body like needs Dr. blood. Well, Dr. Jones touched on, it's really important for us to assess and make sure the body has proper blood flow. Oftentimes the conditions of diabetes plus a person who's smoking or using tobacco in some other form add together and make the wounds so much worse. So smoking and other tobacco use is no good. Diabetes is really no good for wound healing, but together one plus one makes nine. And so there are some factors that the patients are able to control, such as getting the blood sugars under control, but really not using tobacco in any form is incredibly important in wound healing. And so in our, in our practice, we beg, we plead, we use medications when necessary to get patients to abstain from tobacco use. So what does the tobacco do? Does it um, affect the blood vessels or does it, is there something in the nicotine or what is it about it that's so bad? So it collapses down the blood vessels that are trying to bring new healing blood to the ulcer anywhere on the body, whether it's on your elbow or on your foot. And so every puff of cigarette that you take, those blood vessels are collapsed down. And so for that recovery period, which can be 20 minutes to an hour per cigarette, your tissue that you're trying to heal is not getting the new fresh oxygen rich blood that it demands to heal. Okay, and, and this is the whole point of hyperbaric oxygen, puts you under pressure to push that blood where it wouldn't normally want to go. Correct. Or it, hasn't been able to for whatever reason. Yep, and it helps to stimulate angiogenesis or the growth of new blood vessels. And the same with smoking. Smoking also, you know, constricts the vessels, but mm -hmm. it also prevents new blood vessels from forming in those, in those wound areas. And so, yes, it's very important. You have to counsel them and counsel them on smoking cessation or tobacco okay. cessation. All right. Does vaping do the same thing, or is that the lesser of the two evils, or are they they're both bad, just don't do them? Uh, for me, if it has nicotine, it's bad. Okay. <laughs> I agree. And I think that the science is really evolving, that vape is really very bad. And so I think it was painted in this light of the less bad alternative for some time. And we're finding in the medical and scientific community that that's not true. It's just as bad or worse, including kinds of lung damage, um, long-term addiction that looks different than traditional, you know, over-the-counter cigarettes. Perfect. So I would really avoid, avoid any tobacco. All right, sounds good. A caller from Westington Springs asks, what is recommended for tetanus shots? How frequently do you need them? When do you need to get one? You know, the old, you stepped on a rusty nail. <laughs> That's an old, old board's question. That's it, always a board's question. It is. <laughs> so uh, typically, yeah, it depends on your age. Um, it, if older adults, you know, 50, 60 years old, they've had multiple boosters throughout the years. So if they've had a tetanus shot within five years, they typically don't need one. But it's not um, a bad idea to get one if they did have a substantial injury. Um, anything greater than, than 10 years, you definitely need a tetanus booster. Plus, you might need um, extra antigen shot. Uh, 
to cover for any possible antigen. If it's a bad, dirty wound mm -hmm. and sort of thing. So, all right. And I know Medicare won't pay for one just prophylactically. Say, hey, oh, it's been you know 10 years since I've had one. Give me one. There has to be for Medicare patients. There has to be an injury involved with it to do the booster. From my understanding, is that um, what you're seeing as well, Dr. Lincoln? I mean, we encourage people when we say, when was your last tetanus shot? And they say, well, I'm not, if you have to really think about it, you should probably have a tetanus booster. There you go. The patients that I am seeing are seeing me because they have a wound. So, so I'm not yeah. certain if they're presenting to primary care just for um, you know a visit for immunization outside of having a wound. I'm not certain how that's covered. But if I'm seeing them, for sure, they should be very aware of when their last time they shot one. This is true. I think all of your patients have qualifying <laughs> injuries and conditions. So mine, when they're coming to me for their annual Medicare wellness visit or their uh, annual you know, recheck of their diabetes or a high blood pressure may not uh, necessarily qualify. Because I've had people very interested in getting it, and then I have to say, well, I'm sorry, it doesn't count right now. But as soon as you cut yourself, you come to me, and I will give you a shot, and we'll get you boosted. So. But Dr. Cruz, I would like to re-emphasize the importance of the relationship with the primary care doctor. It should be an ongoing relationship for years and years and years that it's something you could say, do you have any cuts anywhere? And if not, you can post it note to next time you see them. And it just, there's so much collaboration when a patient has a wound between the specialist and the, their primary care, their family doc. There's so much collaboration because you in primary care are often the person that's helping to reduce those blood sugars, helping to follow the patient with their tobacco cessation, and giving you know ever-loving support to their emotional needs to help them to get through some of these times that are very difficult. Again, oftentimes in involving chemotherapies and surgeries, sometimes unexpected. And I really think that one of the most important relationships that any patient can have is with their primary care doc. Oh, you're making me blush. <laughs> All right. It may sound a little barbaric, but wound therapies like maggots and honey, like we were talking about, are still used by some healthcare practitioners today. Here's Carter Schmidt with more. When somebody, a patient comes into the wound center, we offer a wide range of treatment options. Um, but really, we first start off by assessing the patient, and we assess the patient from top to bottom. So. We follow the seven steps of wound healing. So first we assess for blood flow, we treat any infection, we assess their nutritional status, glucose control, um, because if you are diabetic, that directly affects how wounds heal. So the maggot therapy works by using engineered maggots that are created in a laboratory and they work by selective debridement. So they are placed onto the wound and they're covered with a dressing and then the maggots actually eat only the dead tissue, so they don't eat good tissue, and then their byproducts help promote other wound healing. A rise of skepticism may occur when patients are to undergo maggot therapy. According to Kim Long, Brookings Health System's Wound Center Director, maggot therapy has been discontinued by local health care providers as there are more advanced wound care options. However, other health providers may return to maggot therapy if the wound isn't healing correctly. Honey is a very frequent um, type of advanced wound care that we use here. It works by a few different good benefits. It works as an antioxidant, it works as an antimicrobial, and also promotes wound healing in a moist wound environment because that, those are the things that we would need to help promote uh, speedy recovery. 
So it's not your typical honey that you would find at the grocery store. It is created um, specifically in a lab per se. Um, so nothing that you would just grab out of the pantry. Um, but it, they come in little tubes and we're able to get the patient set up with that dressing so they're able to use it at home as well. Kim says any disruption of the skin is considered a wound. They assess a wide range of patients from pediatric to elderly patients Ensuring a patient's overall blood flow and nutritional status as healthy is vital as it directly affects wound healing. Wounds are very common, especially in the older population. Even a bump or a scratch hitting it on the side of a nightstand can, can turn into a very complex problem. And so we want to make sure the patients come in early so it doesn't lead to further infections or further tissue loss so we can help them as soon as possible so get them onto the road to recovery. Well, you had already talked about the honey, so that was a perfect uh, segue for that. Um, I actually used maggots one of my first uh, um, years that I was here in Brookings, raised a few eyebrows when I told them <laughs> I wanted to order some maggots for a patient. But they had a wound that was right next to their femoral artery, so you could see the artery just pulsing. And I knew we had to get that dead tissue around it away if it was going to heal. And these little maggots will just eat the dead tissue. They left the blood vessel alone because I was afraid if we started cutting, we might cut a vessel and have some major bleeding yes. that I didn't want to have to try to, to uh, <laughs> deal with. But the patient thought it was pretty neat. They, they have this little mesh cage that mm -hmm. kind of keeps them in. So when they uh, go from their maggot to they hatched, he actually asked if he could take his little, <laughs> they look like little fruit flies. Yes. He asked if he could take his flies home as a pet. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, if you want to take your, your uh, little maggots and your little <laughs> flies home, more power to you. But uh, they did an amazing job. They did more in those uh, few days than we had gotten in the last month. Yes. So. Um, have you used much with maggots or is it sometimes getting over that ick factor with <laughs> patients but so we use them um often in patients who are non-surgical candidates just like you were saying either where their blood vessels or where their bones are in space or the patient just overall is not a healthy candidate to go to the operating room sometimes maggots can really clean out a wound um, I was in practice in wound care in, in um, Texas for five years before relocating to Pennsylvania and so we served a very military rich population. And there were many people that would present to the wound center who had cousins and aunties and brothers who were in Samoa. And so they would come in to the wound center and they would say, well, I have this wound and my auntie cousin in Samoa is using maggot therapy. Can I please start maggot therapy? And so it was sort of the reverse on the usual ugh, kind of factor that we get. All right, interesting. Well, a caller from Rapid City asked uh, about animal bites. Should they be treated? Can you treat it at home or should you see a doctor for those? I so typically for, sorry, Dr. Lincoln. Um, for, typically it depends, you know, on the foot or uh, leg. Um, it depends on kind of what animal it is. I typically would say, yes, you should come in, be, be seen, because we want to make sure what animal it was, if it was a dog or a cat, and depending on what animal it is, sometimes we will prophylactically treat you with antibiotics um, because uh, house animals and pets do carry bacteria in their mouth that can cause significant wounds. We see a lot 
of wounds from dog bites that turn into bad gas infections, which lead to amputations because um, not only did, did a, a dog bite them or their dog started licking their wound and creates this, this bad infection. So th they do have bacteria in their mouths that um, if you are bitten, you should see a doctor for just to make sure you don't need to be put on antibiotics or you know, um, make sure you don't need an updated tetanus booster or something. And rabies, rabies. too, is another thing, you, yeah, you, especially if it's a bat. I, mean, yes. I, I had one lovely patient come into the office and said, I got bit by a bat. I'm like, oh, really? And he breached into his pocket <laughs> and he pulled out the little oh. bat, still alive, in a little plastic bag. And I was like, oh, well, that's very nice. Let me call animal control. <laughs> could, you, could you please put that? Yes. Oh, wait, but yeah. Because so, oftentimes they have to send the bats off to be tested. Tested, and, yes. Yeah. Thankfully, that one was not rabid, so he did not have to go through the full Good. series. <laughs> So, but yeah, so the thing that scares me more than dog bites is actually cat bites. Yes. yes. Um, cats tend to have these piercing teeth where they can get their um, mouth germs deep, like little pins. And so dogs usually have a crushing bite, which can tear your skin and it, it probably looks terrible. Um, but I, I worry a lot more about cat bites because of their ability to puncture deep into the bones. Um, again, this circles back to have an excellent relationship with your family doc see you know what needs to be done and how to go forward does it need to be washed out are we more worried about a crush injury or about a deep puncture all right caller from rapid city is pouring antiseptic band-aid liquid over wounds allows it to dry and then adds the band-aid over it is that an effective way to prevent infection doing more than necessary i remember my grandma would pull out the bottom of your curachrome <laughs> <laughs> i mean there's a lot of those things that you know neosporin are any of those things necessary is it helping hurting good bad ugly i think it depends on the patient and and the depth of the wound i mean if it's a superficial cut and they're relatively healthy then yes you should you know for the first few days keep it clean you can apply a triple antibiotic cream or or a liquid band-aid um, if it's a deeper wound, then you should probably be seen by a provider to make sure it doesn't need sutured clothes or, or something more uh, serious. Um, but for the most part, a use of a topical antibiotic I think is okay for, for a few days, you know, three or four days, but then after a while, um, you should be able to just to switch to a Band-Aid or something else. Well, and also immediately after a wound, soap and a gentle mm -hmm. soap and water yep. and cleaning out any debris that may be in there when it happens can be important. Um, oftentimes people want to use something that's very caustic like betadine or peroxide. And we know from a wound care um, perspective, that's not always the best thing. Sometimes just a gentle soap, water, really flush it out when you first notice it, pat it dry and then take a good assessment. But if it's something that you have any concerns about, again, or if it's been more than 21 days, you really should see somebody about it before it can get into something that's very serious that can lead to amputation. All right, good advice. So a person watching on Facebook asks, what does full thickness mean in wound care? They've heard of full thickness burns, full thickness ulcers. What, what's the thickness that's full? <laughs> so our skin has lots of layers. And so we see this layer on the outside. And sometimes when pale people like me get a very bad sunburn, we can actually see a lot of pinkness that is raised up. Um, Full thickness means that it's all the way through your skin into the underlying tissues. And so oftentimes um, pressure ulcers or pressure sores or cubitus ulcers um, are staged in that way. Are they partial thickness where it's just, you know, skinned or is it something that's actually penetrating down into the deeper tissues? 
All right, excellent. Well, um, I have a caller from Park City, or Park Springs, South Dakota, wondering it, what the docs think about using fish skin or tilapia to cover a severe burn. I've never heard of that. So I have heard about it, read some articles about it. Um, I think especially in the UK and other places, larger cities, Dr. Lincoln probably knows more, but for burns, I have heard of them using a lot of fish scales um, to keep, it also keeps the, the area moist, but also stimulates um, tissue growth and maybe act as a graft. So there are some commercially available skin grafts that are made of fish skins and fish scales that are commercially um, available that are not just from um, the river. <laughs> and I'm, I would suggest to your caller that if they're in consideration of such uh, a, a thoughtful therapy, that they really should be working in collaboration with a burn center, um, certainly with their emergency room, but that's not something we should take care of at home. Burns can be really um, penetrating into the deep tissues and cause incredible loss of life and limb. So burns are not something that we wanna do at home by ourselves. Uh, so I would say reach out to your local burn center, present to the emergency room and they can contact the burn center. But there are uh, ongoing research studies about uh, fish skins and fish therapy. Yep. I, I think some of those studies also lead to other applications other than just burns as well there. I think they're looking into um, other type of, of skin grafts usage for fish scale. Fascinating. And I think our nearest burn center is up in Minneapolis at Hennepin. Um, so there's different types of burns too. There's like first degree burns, second degree burns, third degree burns. Me as a very pale. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Northern European young lady, I'm very familiar with first degree burns, aka sunburn, yes. where it's just the outer layer of the skin that's red and irritated. Uh, but do you want to explain second and third degree burns? So uh, second degree burn is where you actually get blistering and ulceration. Third degree burns is really deep into the tissue. It is this full thickness concept um, and can be devastating. The difficulty with thick um, third degree burns is that it can actually constrict the tissues down so that you don't get blood flow to the hand, the fingers, the chest. Um, significant third degree burns in the chest and the chest wall can actually constrict your rib cage so that you can't expand your lungs, breathe, um, and are really very significant. These can be from electrical burns, from thermal burns, but burns are something we take incredibly seriously and you really should um, present to the emergency room for care of those things. Okay, so like the first degree burns, the sunburn, the wind burn, is there a way to prevent them from peeling or prolong um, the healing process? Or is, is there a good way? I mean, is aloe about a good thing? So to moisture, do? moisture is always the name of the game. Um, again, as a pale freckle-faced person, I got wind burn last weekend at a football game. Um, and so we're gonna always, especially here in um, rural Pennsylvania, where we got 40 inches of snow in one clip last year, we wanna protect our skin from the elements. We wanna make sure you can use whatever is thick enough that your skin can tolerate. So if I use Vaseline on my skin in the winter, it makes me have zits. Um, so I'm able to use something that's a little bit less potent, um, something, anything from the grocery store that you're willing to tolerate. I usually do layered um, sunscreen so I'll put a layer of sunscreen on, go finish my tasks in the closet, and then put another layer of sunscreen on. But just avoidance, um, using in the wintertime, using the uh, hats and lids that come up so just your eyes are exposed, and then using sunglasses or goggles, and just avoiding that contact. 
Excellent. Uh, we received an email asking, why do some wounds smell bad or have an odor? Does that mean they're infected? Or I, I know people ask about odor and color all the time. Where we love to tell me what color the pus is. Does that mean anything? I mean, some wounds do have a very characteristic smell, some bacteria that yes, I've noticed. Yes, and some bacteria like Pseudomonas have yes. significant smell and uh, purulence. Uh, usually it's green. Usually you'll see a, a green film or a green purulence. Um, so yes, usually if there's an odor, there's some sort of either biofilm, bio burden, or active infection going on in that, in that wound. All right, so a lot of bacteria there. So if you smell something, probably a good time to talk to your doctor about it. And, and you know, we can yes. culture it, and then we can tell you exactly what yes. the name of that little bacteria <laughs> is and what antibiotics would be the best choice for you. Because I, I love culturing wounds. When someone comes in with a bad wound, I'm like, I got to find out if there's any little bugs living in there, and I got to culture them so I know what they are. So. And, and it's important for well, patients that um, if they have a wound and they, they think it's infected and they have an antibiotic at home that's left over, it's important mm -hmm. for them not to take it. Just so, so that way, if they come in, we can see it and we can get a good culture and know what the pathogen really is. True, that, that's a very important thing here. So, well, we have literally moments left here. So one last final question so we can get everyone in. A caller from Sioux Falls is wondering, is it best to let a puncture wound bleed before you apply pressure? You kind of flush out that bacteria, that bad stuff, or should we just clamp down on it right away? Clamp right. down on it right away. Yeah. Um, okay. We can stop the bleed. Um, we have really good literature in science in the last 15 years or so about bleeding and the importance of getting a tourniquet on there, but stop the bleeding and then we can deal with any secondary infection, um, rinsing it out, irrigating it out afterwards, but it's really incredibly important to get that bleeding to stop. I agree. All right, last minute question from Facebook. If someone uses regular honey instead of medicinal honey, is something bad gonna happen? Are they gonna turn into a bear? Or? <laughs> well, we wanna make sure that there's no um, bacteria in the honey, yes. like botulinum toxin. Um, just raw honey from you know an outside source or from the pantry um, hasn't been vetted to make sure that there's no other germs and bacteria. And so you don't wanna add honey in to your wound thinking that you're helping and develop a secondary infection. Okay, is there a particular brand of this um, medicinal Medi Honey that you recommend or? Medi Honey, M-E-D-I Honey um, okay. is available commercially again on Amazon. Excellent, and Amazon delivers to South Dakota as yes, well so. as Pennsylvania. So, <laughs> well this has been just a fabulous evening and I've enjoyed talking with uh, both of you here. You've got such a wealth of information and I, I always love being the host because I learn new things each and every time I am on here. So yeah, I, now I almost want to you know get a cut so I can try this <laughs> new stuff out and, and see, but I'm sure at my household there will be bumps and bruises everywhere. Um, my daughter was the Band-Aid queen growing up, but anytime there was a boo-boo, she was covered head to toe in, in Band-Aids, so I, you gotta love her. So. She definitely wanted to make sure that her wounds were clear <laughs> and safe and that things were going good. So, well, I think that this has been super informative and a wonderful evening and I'm really great that you came, so. Thank you winner, so much for having me. It's been wonderful to be here with you. Yep, the winner of our drawing tonight is Russell from Aberdeen. Thank you so much, Russell, for asking a question during the first 20 minutes of the show. A gift will be sent to you. We'll be right back after this.
And joining us tonight from Rapid City Medical Center is Dr. Kevin Weiland. When we think of Henry VIII, most of us envision an oversized man with multiple wives, a bitter personality, and a propensity for beheading his enemies. A lesser known fact is that he suffered with chronic leg sores for the last 20 years of his life. Living in a time before antibiotics, anesthesia, and proper wound care, this king endured excruciating ulcers with no cure available. Would history have been different if his sores could have been treated with today's advanced wound care? As a young man, Henry was athletic and active. Unfortunately, he had multiple sports injuries, and one of which occurred in January 1536, and that one seemed to initiate chronic wounds. He was thrown off of his horse at a jousting tournament, and his fully armored horse landed on top of him. Reports of the time stated he was unconscious for two hours and suffered leg bone fractures. Initially, he appeared to heal, but he later developed ulcers in his legs, and historians noted at that point, his personality changed. His doctors lanced and drained the ulcers, but they never fully healed. There's much modern speculation as to what caused his sores. Likely the injury was the source, but his love of wearing garters around his calf also likely increased his risk for developing varicose veins and blood clots in his legs. His activity level dropped due to his pain and his weight increased. He was at increased risk for type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, and high cholesterol. All of these things together made him susceptible to leg ulcers from blood vessels that did not work well, making it difficult for his initial wounds to heal. If I were transported back to Henry's court, <laughs> with the limited medical knowledge of that time, there would be little I could do to help him. However, if we were to transport Henry to modern day, we could observe his veins and arteries with ultrasound. We'd use CT scans to see if the infection had gone into his bone. We could determine his ankle brachial index, indicating how well his blood is flowing. And Henry would be given anesthesia while we probed and debrided the wounds. We could treat the root of the infection with antibiotics. And devices such as wound-assisted closure, or wound back, and hyperbaric oxygen chambers could help the sores that were left untreated in his time. History may have looked very different if King Henry had not fallen off of his horse, launching a cascade of medical problems. Today, we can learn from his misfortune and take advantage of wound care treatments which avoid unnecessary suffering and possibly change the course of our history. Thank you to our guests, Nephi and Catherine, who have brought wonderful insight to our discussions of wound care. A reminder for all of us, we are in the influenza season here in the upper Midwest. 
If you are getting a COVID vaccine, it is safe to get the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccine at the same time. Please make plans to get your flu vaccine soon. It's an important step to staying healthy. As we conclude, we celebrate our 20th season and we invite you, our viewers, to tell us how this program has made a difference in your life. Please email or mail your story to the addresses on the screen. If you would like to see and hear more episodes of this program, please like and follow us on Facebook and YouTube or visit us at prairiedoc.org. Look for Prairie Doc Perspectives in your local newspaper and be sure to look for the podcast of this program, Prairie Doc On Call, wherever you get your podcasts. From all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Well, that, that was it. Our heart is affected by many things, both good and bad. Researchers in Sweden monitored the heart rates of singers as they performed. The singers' pulses began to speed up and slow down at the same rate. Keep the beat alive. Issues of the heart. Next time, On Call with the Prairie Doc, celebrating our 20th season. Prairie Doc programs have provided truthful, tested, and timely medical information for 20 seasons. Hello, I'm Dr. Jennifer May of Rapid City, and I serve as a board member for the Healing Words Foundation. Please join us as we celebrate this milestone, offering healthcare information in our state and across the region. Rick and Joni Holm began this mission years ago, and every week since then, our Prairie Docs and other medical professionals volunteer many hours to share science-based truth about healthcare on public television, on the radio, in our newspapers, and online. And best of all, everyone has free and easy access to the entire Prairie Doc Library. I ask you to consider making a donation. Please help us continue this important work. Go to prairiedoc.org and make a donation today. Thank you. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by. Avera is a proud sponsor of On Call with the Prairie Doc on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Pure District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swift Health Communications. <laughs>